0: You're listening to Bede, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920-1950. to Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.
1: Eyes and heart are both sorely aching with grief at the sight of the sin and selfishness and sorrow which are within and around me. But help me, dear Lord, to look up, enable me to lift up mine eyes upon the hills, from whence cometh mine help. As travelers on the great mountains refrain from looking down the steep precipices, keeping their eyes upon the heights above, lest sudden vertigo should overcome them, so may I look unto the Lord with humble, steadfast gaze, and receive courage and strength to press onward and upward in the path He has marked out for me. Those words, that cry, as it were, from the heart by the great Spurgeon, but not Charles actually by Susanna, his wife. Well, Michael, we have the privilege today of talking about the Spurgeons and with an emphasis on Susie, his dear wife. And for you and I to do this in the most productive way, we've agreed to bring in an expert, not only on Susanna Spurgeon, but also Charles. So maybe I'll turn it over to you so you can introduce to our listeners, our distinguished guest today.
2: Yeah, it's a great privilege to have with us, uh, Dr. Ray Rhodes. Uh, Dr. Rhodes is a pastor, but also a graduate uh, in the uh, doctoral program of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He and I, I forget the exact time we first met, but I believe it was in the hotel on campus there, the Legacy Center. We certainly met a number of times since then, because Dr. Rhodes would often come up uh, on kind of writing sabbaticals, mini writing sabbaticals, and... uh, uh, Southern Seminary and the Legacy Center in particular was a context that he used for those. He, uh, I understand he has other uh, retreat centers, so to speak, but uh, it was a great privilege to get to know Ray over the years and then to see the fruit of his of his writing in uh, the two books that have been uh, uh, published uh, under his name uh, in recent years, uh, Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, which appeared in 2018, and then, uh, more recently, uh, Yours Till Heaven, The Untold Love Story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. So welcome, uh, Ray, uh, to this uh, to this podcast.
3: Well, thank you, Dr. Haken and Dr. Pullman. Great to be with you today.
2: So today we really want to speak about, uh, obviously, uh, Charles will come into the story, but we really want to speak about Susanna. And... Um, <clears throat> Let's uh, uh, begin with uh, an affirmation that you make in "Yours Till Heaven," that Susanna Spurgeon is one of Christian history's greatest women. And uh, why, why do you feel that? And uh, what is there that, in your mind, would make her really a model uh, for uh, Christian women today?
3: Yes, uh, there. Of course, there are many great women in Christian history. Sadly, many of them are yet unknown, or barely known. Such was the case with Susanna Spurgeon herself. Uh, and in reality, had she never married Charles, we, we probably wouldn't know anything about her today. So when we think of the, the greatness of Susie Spurgeon in the best sense of that word, we really won't find it in her birth or childhood, nothing extraordinary about that. Uh, really won't find it in her early spirituality. Uh, she became a Christian at age 20. It uh, doesn't seem that her father, at least, was uh, overly spiritual or committed in that regard. Her mother seems to be the more godly influence in their lives. It was 1840s, I think, when she started attending the New Park Street Chapel under James Smith, who was the pastor then, and he had the great greatest influence on her. So we really can't f- find it in those early roots. Uh, But at age 20, she was converted at a place called the Poultry Chapel in central London. Uh, And yet she fell into almost immediately. She described it as a backslidden state and she kept her profession, her awakening to herself. She didn't tell anyone. And she was really rather cold towards the things of the Lord. So uh, even in that, we nothing remarkable about Susie until she meets Charles and uh her first meeting with them she didn't care much for him but later through william olney uh, thomas Olney's son and their rel- uh, her relative through marriage on her mother's side uh, and they had a great spiritual influence on her she was introduced to charles uh, spurgeon and uh, shared with and he learned of her spiritual struggles gave her a copy of the pilgrim's progress And that really is the beginning of what I would say is the greatness of Susanna Spurgeon because she appreciated that. She listened to his counsel. And within a few short months, she's giving a very robust Christian testimony that's deep in theology. It's really amazing. And really, the only explanation I have for that is that in her childhood, indeed, she did, uh, uh, was acquainted with the Bible, read the Bible, I read devotional literature it had been very common in her childhood for morning and evening devotions, even among those not that devout. It was a rather common practice. Uh, so she uh, she listened and she learned, and then we see, I think, the greatness of Susanna Spurgeon really in its earliest stages in her commitment uh, to Charles during their engagement. She determined, really, through her mother's counsel that she would never be a hindrance to him, uh, not allowing her sickness, uh, any sicknesses she might encounter or any other thing to hinder his public ministry. So she gave him up fully, even during their engagement to his public ministry, to the extent that I'm rather convinced that we don't have Spurgeon as we have him, had he not had Susie. Uh, as his wife. Uh, and she, in fact, here's one particular example. This is before her, uh, uh, this is at some point in their midlife together. Spurgeon is away at a Baptist union event. Uh, Susie falls very ill, almost to the point of death. And, uh, Spurgeon is in Dublin, I believe she gets a message to him not to return home, but to continue with his ministry there, uh, Uh, at that time and Spurgeon struggles with that and perhaps he should have gone home, but uh, he he chose not to. And he felt that he had such a support at home, such a loving wife that she was not sulking or complaining or anything like that. So I I, I think the level of her sacrifice is, is off the charts. Really Uh, Spurgeon was gone a lot. Uh, He was preaching 12 times a week early on, not always overnight away from uh, London, but away from home quite a bit. And that just continued throughout, uh, throughout his ministry. Uh, about 10 years into their marriage, she became much an invalid and was homebound for much of the rest of their marriage. And yet she, uh, she did all that she could do in Christian service, even though she was sick, even though she was homebound. And that included the book fund. Uh, which began in 1875 and continued through her death. And she gave away 200,000 books to poor pastors, as well as other items of help and uh, resources to poor pastor's families. She uh, helped Spurgeon earlier on before her sickness in compiling smooth stones taken from ancient brooks, really the beginning of her literary career. She would go on to write five books and co-edit and contribute to the four-volume autobiography of Spurgeon. Uh, she planted a church after Spurgeon died. Uh, she was, you know, the, the key player at least in the planting of, of Eula Baptist Church at Bexhill on Sea. She just, and then she poured her life into Spurgeon's legacy uh, after he died. She didn't really imagine herself as having an identity apart from him she rejoiced and found great uh, comfort in finding her life and identity and ministry through that of her husband and there are a thousand other ways that she supported them as well but uh, she did that pretty much as you said earlier under the shadows of her husband
1: ray if i could jump in uh, i want to commend you on this program for the service you've done to to really bring susie Susanna. I i told you earlier it's hard for me to call her susie I respect her so much, and even more so after reading your two books that highlight her so well. I learned so many things about Susanna that I haven't learned in all of my training simply because of that shadow of Charles. It's so big, and he, by God's grace, accomplished so much. But you're so good to point out how we wouldn't have the Charles Spurgeon we know without Susanna and the role that, by God's grace, she played in his life. I've thought of uh if you wrote another book on on Susie Spurgeon you could call it uh, you know the forgotten Susie in the vein of Ian Murray's great uh, little biography of of Charles in many ways she is forgotten and ought not to be and your work has done a lot uh to help her be remembered as she should be I want to ask you just personally as as a historian and here you are writing biography and uh very helpful biography uh You've not only written these two books, but if I'm not mistaken, you're not done. You're not done with the Spurgeons. Do you have another project in, in the works?
3: I do. A very intimidating project, uh, writing a, a biography of Charles Spurgeon uh, okay. for a B&H academic scheduled for 2024. So much much work to be done.
1: <laughs> well, so our, our listeners can be praying for you and yeah. uh, anticipating another great work on the Spurgeons. But I wanted to ask you then personally, what has this... You know, journey with the Spurgeons done for you personally? I mean, how has it been writing on such spiritual giants? Has it affected you?
3: Yeah, I think one thing is conviction. Um, I think of uh, Packers, maybe in his introduction to A Quest for Godliness, the Puritan Vision of the Christian Life, which is one of my favorite uh, books. He talks of, he speaks of the Puritans as uh, redwoods. and the rest of us uh, uh, much smaller in size. And when I read Charles and Susie, I feel the conviction of uh, much uh, time wasted in the course of my life. Uh, uh, The diligence, the discipline, the sort of level of commitment that they displayed, it, it really is. It really is conviction convicting. Now, as I encourage myself and others, we shouldn't imagine ourselves to be our Christian heroes. We can't set out to be Charles Spurgeon or or anyone else, but we can certainly learn from them and we can follow their example. If we try to be them, we will continually be frustrated, of course, especially when set out to be a Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> well,
1: Ray and, and Michael, yeah. maybe we could speak to this just for a moment. There's a lot of discussion today about the usefulness of biography or our heroes. I mean, particularly in evangelicalism, where or- hearing a lot today about choose your heroes wisely. And of course we want to, but no biographer is saying, no, no real scholar of, bio, uh, of, of history is saying that these people are perfect or that there weren't flaws. But what, what I think I hear you saying, Ray and, and Michael, please jump in here when, uh, when you want. Uh, how, do we, how do we look at our heroes? Well, we look at them critically, uh, but there are certainly things worth uh, emulation, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. Uh, their gospel, you know, Spurgeon's gospel-centeredness, uh, being—I mean, I, I really challenge anyone to pick up any work of Spurgeon or any sermon by Spurgeon, and uh, you will soon encounter the gospel. You will soon encounter the beauty of Christ, the glory of the gospel, the way of salvation. Uh, he believed that's why folks read his sermons. Uh, he couldn't—you know—he said the only. The only reason I could give that folks read my sermons is because they are so filled with the gospel and they're written in the language of everyday person, you know, of the everyday person. And Spurgeon indeed was the people's Hmm. preacher, which is at the heart of his greatness. So I certainly uh, not only a conviction, but uh, want to be and attempt to be and seek to be in my own preaching and writing to exalt, exalt the Lord Jesus and the gospel of Christ and his faithfulness to scripture, Spurgeon's, along with his marriage. I've learned much about marriage from Spurgeon as well.
1: And isn't Charles good? Spurgeon's very good at helping us understand how uh, to, why would biography or why would any uh, other human being, Christian teacher, we could say be useful is it fair to say his favorite book after the Bible was The Pilgrim's Progress? That's right. And his affection for Bunyan. And as you draw out so well in, in your book, Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, uh, you make it clear he loves Pilgrim's Progress because he says it just the the ethos of it, the co- everything about it is Bible. He goes, I feel like I'm mm-hmm. reading the Bible as I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress. So I think you note... Uh, he thought he read it over a hundred times. That's right. In his life, and he loved the
3: Holy War as well. He, he loved Bunyan very much, and <laughs> his historical hero, he said, was George Whitfield. Uh, so uh,
1: hmm. you know, he
3: loved many. He loved the Puritans. He loved Whitfield. Uh, he loved Bunyan, and
1: many others. Seems like the common denominator for him is anyone that gives him the yep, Bible. That's right. And gives him gives him Christ. That's what makes him worth reading.
2: Yeah, I should have asked before, right at the beginning, um, what are, what are uh, Susanna's dates, just to help orient our kind of uh, perspective on her life? Um,
3: Susanna was born in January 15th, 1832, and died in 1903, so really all of her life was uh, Victorian. Uh, Victoria came to the throne just a few years after uh, Susanna was born, and Victoria died in 1901 so uh, Susanna and and Victoria's life uh, coincided.
2: (laughs) Mm. So after uh, uh, Charles's death in 1892, uh, she's involved in uh, producing his autobiography, which came out initially at four volumes and uh, was reproduced by the Banner of Truth in the '60s or '70s, as a two-volume abridgment, um, which I felt was good, but not good in one sense, because there were large sections left out that I think were very helpful for understanding both her, uh, both uh, Charles and her. So, um, in d- drafting that, she—if you uh, look at the way that that is normally entered in um, library catalogs, it's. Uh, Susanna Spurgeon and J.W. Harold, who was Charles Spurgeon's personal secretary. Uh, do you know? Do we know much about Harold? Uh, to what degree did he draft those four volumes, or was it largely Susanna? Right. Or uh, Do we even uh, know? Well, the Harold.
3: There's of that? one biography of Joseph Harold that is out of print, and the only copy I found is in the British uh, Library. I've not oh. seen it yet, uh, but it's uh, that's the only one that's listed. Okay. On World Cat is uh, that one. Uh, he w- Spurgeon called him his armor bearer. He was such a dear friend and such a, a, a faithful defender. He was with him through, of course, through the downgrade controversy. Harold was born in 1849 in East Anglia, like Spurgeon himself. He entered the pastor's college in 1870 and became a pastor uh, during that time until the late 1870s when Spurgeon called him. To be his personal secretary. Uh, and uh, after Spurgeon died, he was chosen to be the one who continued revising and editing Spurgeon's sermons, many uh, still to be published after Spurgeon's death. And he died in 1912. He traveled with Spurgeon uh, often, he was with him constantly, uh, he preached for Spurgeon. Uh, When Spurgeon planted a church in his neighborhood in the 1880s called Beulah Baptist Church, then it's uh, uh, it was that Harold was the first pastor of that. And in fact, uh, sort of an interesting uh, tidbit of information is that Susanna joined that church without ever leaving her membership at the new park street chapel of course the new park street chapel, not of course, but they, they disputed that then, but I've seen the church records of her actually becoming a member of that church. And the only reason I can give for that is, and this is sort of a side uh, street I took here, I apologize. But uh, the only reason I can give for that is it was in her neighborhood and some level of involvement she might could have had uh, in that church due to her illness. But uh, nevertheless, Harold, and plus Harold was, uh, a trusted friend and associate. And so when it came uh, in the late 1880s, I believe 1890s, I believe it started in 1897. It was completed, the four volumes in 1901. Uh, of course, Harold and Susie were chosen to be the, uh, to edit that and contribute to that. But as far as how the mechanics work, I'm, I'm not certain on that. Uh, both contributed uh, and both contributed significantly. I mean, you read through that. It's amazing how, much Susie uh, contributed to that and, and helped in the editing of that, especially the, the more personal parts of that.
2: So, when you talked earlier about uh, Susie writing five volumes, were you including those?
3: No, uh, no. She she her first volume now uh, back in the 1855 is when Spurgeon published uh, "Smooth Stones Taken from Ancient Brooks," and essentially she chose all of the quotes in that book from the writings of Thomas Brooks. And uh, while he was, uh, you know, he would go over to see her on Monday nights to edit sermons for publication. Uh, She would sit with him. That was their date night, so to speak, uh, early in the week. (laughs) He'd be editing sermons. (laughs) Uh, And he gave her some Brooks uh, books and said, pull some good quotes from this. And uh, she did. And that became that was her first work. But her name was never mentioned in the original nor as the banner of truth is republished that it's not mentioned now but susie said there was a love story running between the pages of that little book but i'm not counting that one either she uh, her first her first book was 10 years of my life in the service of the book fund which came out in 1886 the book fund started in 1875 this came out in 1886 and it is the closest thing to autobiography of susie that we have because she fills it with uh, not only book, stunts, book fund stories, but her own story and her life with Charles and experiences they had together. And then 10 years after that, uh, a book that, of course, included uh, the last years of Charles's life, She uh, it was simply titled 10 More Years <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, in the book fund. And so that was her first two books and they're really excellent treatments. The, the letters that pastors send her that she, in her uh, her response back to them is is often very moving and uh, uh very emotional as well you see the sort of circumstances these pastors lived in but then after that after Spurgeon dies she does three devotional books mm. uh and uh they're very good uh one of them has been re- well all of them have been redone by various people but one of them through particular baptist press it's uh it was done in I forget what year they did that particular Baptist Press did this a cluster of camphor, words of cheer and comfort to sick and sorrowful souls. And there's a little mini biographical sketch in the back of that book of Susanna Spurgeon as well.
1: Uh, and for our listeners, we're going to put these all on the the episode description, so you just sit back and listen. We'll, we'll make sure we point you to all these resources that Ray's referencing.
3: Yeah. So that, uh, that was her five standalone books. And then she contributed, co-edited to the four volumes and as well, she's also contributing to the sword and the trial and actually mm. serves as editor for a short time of that after Spurgeon dies before Thomas Spurgeon, the son takes
2: over editing that. So, um, from the what you tells us there about uh, J. W. Harold, it's obvious that Spurgeon's achievements are deeply grounded in his marriage, but also uh, this kind of circle of friends, uh, J. W. Harold, and then the publishers, uh, Passmore and Alabaster. Both of them were deacons, right, at um, at the uh, Tabernacle.
3: Uh, Passmore was. He was okay. a deacon. In fact, he had been there through. Uh, he was there as a child under John Rippon when it was at. Uh, carter oh
2: really carter, okay. yes
3: he was there through ripon through angus through smith uh and there was one other pastor uh as well uh walters right before spurgeon came had a short ministry there so passmore was there through all of that experience he became a deacon in after spurgeon was there in 1862 he was baptized uh there so he was uh he was the first member of the Sunday school class. This is before his conversion and baptism when the church moved to new park street in their, their new building from Carter street. I believe it was Carter street where it was under yep. Rippon. Yep. And he actually uh, helped him. You know, Rippon uh, as I recall, helped to get the church over to uh, park street. And that's where it was when Spurgeon came and that's where Passmore was. And they were dearest friends. He often traveled with Spurgeon uh, on his continental tours and other places, uh, Passmore's with him.
2: And then Alabaster.
3: Yeah, he was a, a church of England, uh, but Spurgeon saw him oh, as, a, okay. a, as a, as a godly man and uh, a dear friend as well. And he had just a wonderful relationship with uh, them.
1: Well, I, I just, I'm, I'm looking over it at, at your most recent book in thinking about our audience, I mean, the subtitle is The Untold Love Story of Charles and Susie Spurgeon. So I think we got to get into the love story here for a moment. And uh, I think some of our listeners might be very encouraged. Would it be fair to say, at least for Susie, it wasn't love at first sermon? How did this love story begin?
3: Yeah, that's right. She, uh, she was much more accustomed to uh, uh, better looking Pastors, I assume, better dressed pastors. Yeah, what
1: was her initial thought when she heard him on that Sunday night? In both offend,
3: she was offended and she found him a bit comical <laughs> uh, the way he would wave his uh, handkerchief and uh, the way he was dressed and his poor haircut, uh, you know, his, uh, all of that. She found him rather humorous and couldn't understand the excitement. Uh, she did not hear him on Sunday morning. This is December 18th, 1853, when he preaches there just as a guest preacher. He's 19 years old, uh, and he is intimidated on his way over, sees the big building. He's got a village church. He walks in. There's hardly anyone there. but uh, So she's not there, but she's encouraged to come that evening. The folks who were there are very excited about his morning sermon, and they recruited others to join, and she was recruited by the Olney family, and she came. But uh, nothing that night. She couldn't recall if she even met him that night at the door or anything like that. Uh, so not love at first yeah. sight <laughs> or first sermon.
1: Yeah, no, initially she couldn't understand the hype. Like she, everybody was talking to all the buzz from the morning sermon and they persuaded her to come out that Sunday night. And, and again, some of our uh, unmarried listeners perhaps be encouraged. Uh, <laughs> someone may not have an initial uh, affection for you, but that can obviously change. That was in January. By April, things had really changed uh, in between that time. He had been pasturing her, if if I get the timeline right, uh, a little bit gave her a copy of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it seems to me Susie was dealing with her own maybe issues of assurance. Would that be fair to say?
3: I think so. That was yeah. That was that would be
1: correct. But it seems to me, if I remember the timeline, Ray, by April, Charles knew something. Something was changing, at least in his heart. Or maybe it was late, Maybe it was June, but I think it was yeah.
3: Well, he's he's there sort of on probation uh, by his own choice. So the church was pretty excited about him, but primarily Spurgeon was urging a longer probationary period before he uh, it was determined he would be the pastor. So he is preaching there. He's also going back to Water Beach and preaching. So he's sharing time between the two churches. That's where he was actually pastor from January till April, and I think it's April 24th, maybe he formally becomes the pastor of the church. And sometimes just before that is when he learned of Susie's spiritual struggles. He had been meeting her and getting to know her at the Olney home uh, because they were the prominent figures of the church. And so he would often be there. She would be there as well as a relative and friend. And uh, they got to know each other through that experience. And then at some point, probably early, uh, late March or early April, he sent her the Pilgrim's Progress and inscribed that. There's no indication that Susie had any idea how he may have been feeling about her, sometime shortly after that, obviously, because in June, uh, so three months later, you think about the timeline, December of 1853, she finds him humorous and she's rather offended by this character in the pulpit in April, he's sending her the pilgrim's progress and she's warming up to him as someone that she can get counsel and help from and appreciating his preaching now as well. And then, um, in June, Spurgeon and, and Susie, just a group from the church, not a, any sort of, uh, courtship event, (laughs) attend the grand reopening of the Crystal Palace, uh, this time in South London, and they're seated together, and Spurgeon always has a book with him. He had uh, Martin Tupper's proverbial philosophy, and he opened to a section on marriage and points it to Susie. He says, do you pray for the one who's to be your husband? Now, we may not get that, but she got what he was saying, and as far as we know, that was the first indication of anything and then Spurgeon slyly said to Susie, he said, would you take a walk with me? And they left the group, which uh, seems to have been a little bit uh, uh, progressive, perhaps. So they walked off alone and walked out of the Crystal Palace down to the lake. And if you've ever been there, uh, the uh, Susie describes the dinosaur models. They, they were not called dinosaurs or they were just about to be classified as dinosaurs. She called them uh uh, uh, monsters, <laughs> uh, these models that were there. And she describes love in the air. Her heart is rapidly beating. Uh, she's excited about uh, what she's hearing from
1: Charles as they walk by. Red in the face, <laughs> like the black red in the face. You can <laughs> almost hear
3: the violins kicking in, in the background. <laughs> Henry Mancini, like, uh, <laughs> all of the rest. Right. And then two months later, they're engaged in August. Yep. So, uh, what a change in less than a year. <laughs>
1: And he proposes in her grandfather's garden. He does. That just that seems to add to the beauty of this love story in a garden, no less.
3: Uh, and she goes upstairs and prays uh, and thanks the Lord for uh, the gift of such a good man.
2: Yeah, let me let me ask you a question regarding uh, Susanna uh, later in life. Then, as a mother. Um. Uh, what kind of detail do we know about her relationship with her two sons, Thomas and Charles, um, et cetera?
3: Yeah. uh, Well, uh, she was, uh, you know, Spurgeon (laughs) believed in family worship, uh, and he believed in it twice a day, if possible. He realized that some would not be able to uh, engage in family worship, but uh, once a day, he had no category for for, uh, not doing it every day. Uh, and so family worship was an important part of the Spurgeon household. And when Spurgeon was away, of course, Susanna would lead that. And then often on Sunday evening, she would remain home with the children, just as his own mom had. And she would read the scripture with them and pray with them. And, and both sons pointed to her as as really the primary influence on them coming to Christ so she was not with them at the moment of conversion they both looked to her as the really the and they both adored and revered Charles loved him dearly but it was Susie uh, that I think both of them would say uh, uh, led them more to Christ and and the sense of coming to the gospel and whatnot. Uh, so she was with them, uh, and then you know they would go off to various schools and whatnot, uh, and she would write them and encourage them to walk in holiness. There's some wonderful letters between her and the boys when they were at Brighton, for example, studying. So she maintained a very close relationship with them and their children uh, throughout.
2: Is there there is a biography of one of the sons, right, Lamplighter and Son? Which is, which son is that? Is that, that's Charles who goes to Australia? Uh,
3: Thomas. Thomas. And uh, actually there's a biography that precedes that by Pike.
2: He also did the six
3: volumes on Spurgeon. uh, That's just called Thomas Spurgeon, I believe. Okay. And it was, uh, it was done. And there's not one that I'm aware of on Charles. On Charles. Uh,
2: So, yeah.
3: So So Thomas received most of the attention.
2: So that's awaiting your pen after... uh (laughs) after the buy-on on on his father
3: Um, I may not live long enough Dr. Haken I'm getting older
1: (laughs) well Ray if I could ask this I I mean when we think of Charles Spurgeon we also not we don't just think of powerful preaching and all, all his work at the pastor's college and the list goes on what always comes to mind too is his suffering I mean his bouts with depression he battled gout I mean kidney disease so many things he dealt with, but you have a chapter in, in your biography of Susie, uh, I think entitled The Great Sufferer. So it wasn't just Charles who suffered physically and perhaps emotionally too. Tell us a little bit about Susie's battle with suffering.
3: Yeah, and, and that descriptor is uh, uh, from Charles Ray, the first biographer of Susie in uh, 1903, uh, The Great Sufferer. So Charles and Susie were, were married in 1856, January 8, 1856, to, it, to great fanfare. The, the, the building was packed. There were a couple of thousand people outside. Police officers were called in and managed this affair. I mean, it's really astounding. Uh, Spurgeon is country Baptist preacher and uh, marrying a London girl, which uh, very different in personality. But they, uh, they, they get married. They go off to Paris for a honeymoon. They come back. Spurgeon is immersed in his work. She's able, She travels with him to various places across the, the Alps. Uh, she's with him when he preaches in Calvin's pulpit in Geneva. The only time I think he wore a, a robe is uh, when he preached there. But uh, they had children the first year of their marriage. So the first year of their marriage is really filled with great highs of uh, joy and also great lows. Uh, so they're married in January. They have they have children. Uh, in October is the Music Hall disaster that most folks are familiar with. That knows about Spurgeon, and they never have children again uh, after that. And that's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, they dearly loved children, both of them. The orphanages are one example of that, uh, and she loved the the grandchildren and her children so much. And so it seems that she could not have children. And then when she has surgery in either late 1868 or early 1869, it is by the famed gynecologist uh, James Simpson, and uh, who becomes a gr- great friend of Spurgeon's as well, and actually is reading a Spurgeon sermon year his death uh, when, he, when Simpson dies. And so her, her, her affliction is related to that, uh, some sort of female issues that she's going through and she says after 1868 that her traveling days are essentially over. And I was able to look at the record book at the Metropolitan Tabernacle and you can see when Susie joins the church, you can see Spurgeon signing off on that. And then you can also see in 1867 when her attendance starts dropping off. And really in 1868, you don't see Susie there anymore. Uh, there is a there are occasions when she did go she was there for the boys baptism and whatnot so she's not even able to attend church her pain is so great at times that she cannot raise her hand or her head she says uh, you know some a theory uploaded and uh, others have talked about is uh, endometriosis which can cause lots of pain uh, as well and of course surgery not what it was uh, not what it is today then so she suffered through all of that and yet yet as i mentioned earlier by god's grace and providence she was able to persevere and accomplish much as an afflicted widow uh, through that time of great suffering and coupled with that was spurgeon's suffering uh, you know his, as you mentioned he had he had gout earlier in their marriage he's already experiencing that his health problems just are exasperated throughout And after the music hall disaster in 1856, I think his health declines, including his emotional health. And so there's a situation when Susie could walk into a room and he's weeping and he doesn't really have an explanation for that. Uh, He is in the dungeon of despair. He is beneath the dungeon as he would describe it of despair and she would comfort him. There's times she would read the poetry of George Herbert to him. He found great comfort in that. And she, uh, she said she would weep with him uh, simply because she loved him and she wanted him to feel her identification with his own suffering. So they suffered together. And, and one of my favorite books by Spurgeon is The Checkbook of Faith. He wrote during the downgrade controversy and the introduction to that book could stand alone as a, a pamphlet. It's so wonderful he describes he's swimming in these seas of controversy he says and he talks about the challenges that he's facing he doesn't mention the downgrade specifically but we know what he's talking about he's writing from montan and he says beside all of that is one i love more than life itself back at home so he's a thousand miles away she's at home his letters indicate to her, "Oh that you were here! Oh that you were here! Oh that you were here!" In all of his travels, he wanted her with him, and she could not. She could not be with him. So this is really magnifying the suffering of both of them. They both wanted to be uh, together, and miraculously, in uh, 1891 in October, when he makes another trip, he would go there every year from 1871 or two until he died in 1892 for sometimes three months of the year for recovery. The nature of her illness, she couldn't travel. The nature of his illness, his doctor said, you've got to get to the coast. You've got to get to warmer weather. Miraculously, uh, the Lord raised her up and she made that last trip with him. And she was with him those last three months of his life. She was with him at his bedside. And immediately after he died, she prayed and thanked the Lord for his life and and their marriage together. So uh, yes, great sufferer in many ways. And then she was lonely after that. Uh, but continued on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And 11 years, am I right? 11 mm-hmm. years after yeah. his home going, she persevered. Uh, that might be the one thing that stands out to me the most about her life is her faithfulness through suffering. That's right. And we could say the same of Charles perhaps, but she dealt with it. Uh, they both had to be apart. part. I wonder if you could speak to this Ray and, and Michael, if you could too, uh, you mentioned about 20 years he would take these retreats and he had to do it for health reasons. I understand. And he would go to the South of France to recover. And as you mentioned, sometimes up to three months at a time, uh, is there any, and you seem to recognize what might be an objection to that in your book. You do bring this up. Some might, I think you put it this way. Some might say that Charles's love could have been more practical. I think he used that because for 20 years he continued to take those trips and leave her alone, uh, that would have been really hard for me to leave mm. but maybe you could speak to that because here we are our heroes is this a point of critique is this a something we just have to understand better yeah
3: I, I think a lot of it some of it at least is context uh you know the way you know ministers thought of their ministry then i mean we tend tend to think a bit more about or have a, a different ideas perhaps of what it means to uh, love our families, love our wives and, and meaning pro- more proximity, proximity to them than they did then. You know, Spurgeon, and I, I mentioned this in the new book, uh, I think, and this is a theory I floated. He was very influenced by George Whitfield, ministry first. but he's also very influenced by the mm-hmm. Puritans. And you read the Puritan love letters and the, the way the Puritans thought of their marriage and, how intimate and how even romantic we might describe some of that. And I think he was also influenced by that and it kept him in a good balance. Uh, I, I believe, but it, the, every time he would leave Westwood, for example, their home, their last home, uh, there's, there's accounts in the sword in the trial, as monthly magazine, which he said is really where my autobiography is. If you read the sword in the trial, you'll find my story there. Uh, he would talk about leaving her behind and how much that pained him. So I think we would be more concerned about Spurgeon's attitude if he had been more cavalier about that, if that's the right word. And uh, also if he had left her unattended. Now Spurgeon was blessed. Uh, He didn't have a lot of money when he died, but a lot of money came through Spurgeon's hands and his home was this industry that employed all sorts of folks, uh, from uh, uh, cooks to dressmakers to guys who took care of the the lawn and the gardens and whatnot. So when late in life, he had about nine servants, uh, household employees. And I think even a middle class Victorian had usually at least one servant that would help with their family. Uh, and Spurgeon had those, and he treated them as if they were his own family. They attended family worship with him, and all the rest. But the point being, she was cared for. She had people with her, not the same as having her husband, but he never would have left her without the care that she needed. Uh, but it's, it is a it is a fair question, at least to to wonder. There's no evidence to suggest. Uh, anything other than love between them, and Susie never suggested anything like that as well. Their their letters, again back and forth, reveal just the opposite.
1: Oh, all you hear is support from her, love for mm-hmm. her husband, and 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 the health issues that Charles dealt with. We in our day and age might not understand. It's not as easy as going out to CVS and you know doing whatever. Right. His trips there were very intentional for his health and uh, for the sake of the ministry. And you do get. Nothing but the impression that Susanna wanted that for him, for the glory of God and and the good of her husband.
3: Yeah, yeah that's right. And it's not like she was uh, a robot or anything. She she talks of the anxiety she felt without yeah. him. She would hear a noise in the home and <laughs> or whatever, and she longed for him. There's stories of her sitting at his desk, knowing he's a long ways away. And But her, her main grief during those times is she's concerned about him. He's in Montan yeah. because of his own affliction. And so really moving is think of her sitting beside her desk. She would go to his chair, uh, fall on her knees and pray for him and and pray and, and weep herself. So they were very, very close. And I think it would be, hmm. it would be inaccurate for us to, to judge Spurgeon as inattentive and unloving in any way towards her. It's just a, it a different time, a different circumstance. Yeah.
1: It was, and Ray, I was just so glad the way you handled that in your book, and our listeners could could read more about that. Uh, you you deal with that uh, question, and I think you handle it really well. Uh, well, we like to move toward the end of these episodes, as Michael knows, uh, Ray, too, and we've alluded to a number of things, but we, we think of someone uh, in terms of for today. So the legacy of Susanna and Charles's marriage for today, what might be one or two takeaways we could all uh add here for um for today's church and and our own marriages or future marriages
3: yeah uh and i would go back again to um uh, the, the gospel is center in all things i mean spurgeon said christ was like the sun and he was the center everything else revolved around him and for any marriage uh, for any relationship uh, that must be the case for it to glorify god and to result in the greatest of blessings to us is that Christ above all Christ before all Christ all in all. And that was Spurgeon's heart. He was Christ centered. If, if nothing else, I think we learn as well uh, communication, you know, Spurgeon lived in a day without uh, the sort of technology that we enjoy and benefit from. He wrote her every day, every day that he was gone.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and you
3: think about the way he would write. I mean, Spurgeon preferred a dip pen. He would dip in ink and write her. And when he's leaving her on just the eve of their marriage, he's going to visit his family for Christmas. They're going to be married in uh, January. He's on the train and he pulls out his uh, writing instruments and he pens her a letter. And he says that, uh, he said, I'm, I am daydream of you. I'm daydreaming of you, even though I just left you. <laughs> and uh wow. that's the sort of language that he used and uh i know all of us uh, speaking to me specifically here but uh, all of us could probably do a better job in in communication with our wives and not only just you know here are the facts he did that here's you know the facts but he would describe things he saw he would even he, he would even sketch out uh, little drawings of things that he witnessed when he was traveling and uh so he would give her the facts. He would talk to her about needs. He would ask her to pray for him. Uh, and he would tell. He was very honest with her. He said, "I don't feel as, as warm towards the Lord as I as I did." Pray for me. And then he would he would also fill those letters with those uh, romantic interludes, I guess, uh, describing so wonderfully uh, his love and affection for her.
1: Wow, to my shame, uh, I don't know. Do we? Is there a volume of the correspondence of Charles and Susanna Spurgeon? There's not a the, volume. The most
3: that we have is in the autobiography, uh, and his okay. his son Charles did a book on the, uh, the letters of Charles Spurgeon, which that could never be complete. Okay. That can never be a complete work. Uh, and there's some letters between mostly Charles. We, that's interesting. We don't really have much from Susanna to Charles that have, that's, remains. Uh, where those are, you know, there's some accounts of Charles writing, responding to 500 letters a week. I was reading again just this week how bags and bags of mail came to his desk every week. And he couldn't respond to everything, uh, but he did respond to a lot. And Dr. Whitney at Southern, I think, did the math on that. He said, if you just wrote little short notes, it would take eight hours, you know, uh, think of just nonstop writing. I hope I'm quoting Dr. Whitney, right? Uh, if wow. not, Chance, take this out. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think he also said, I can't tweet 500 uh, tweets a week. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: that's incredible productivity. And well, I mean, maybe on your next trip over across the pond in some treasure chest or some chest up in an attic. There's got to be some letters from Susanna, uh, things that that you could unearth, and be edit, editor of. So an edited volume, in addition to your authored volumes, would, we're just creating more work for you, right? It'd be wonderful on, to have those letters
3: more... uh, if they if they do in yeah. fact exist. But to, to put Spurgeon's letters in. It would take a multi-volume set uh, to do that. If it's, And it's impossible, of course, if you're writing 500 letters a week or even 100 letters a week over the course of his life, I mean, there's, that's an impossible task, but it would be wonderful. And there are some of those around. You can still find the letters. You can buy Spurgeon letters on eBay. <laughs> the Angus Library wow. has uh, Spurgeon letters. Spurgeon's College uh, in both uh, Kansas City and in London have Spurgeon letters as well as other collectors. So you can you can read some of those.
1: Well, Ray, this has been yes. a delight to talk to you. And and Michael, I hope you don't mind me just butting in here. The clock yep. is our enemy. Uh, I do see it, but I thought of an appropriate way. I thought we could conclude this episode dedicated to the Spurgeons with an emphasis on Susanna in the second volume that we have from Banner of Truth on his autobiography, Charles Spurgeon's autobiography. Uh, Charles writes something that I think is so appropriate, not only to sum up uh mission accomplished in his life and in Susanna's life. But he, but he writes this. This is Charles. As long as there is breath in our bodies, let us serve Christ. As long as we think, as long as we can speak, as long as we can work, let us serve him. Let us even serve him with our last gasp. And if it be possible, let us try to set some work going that will glorify him when we are dead and gone. Let us scatter some seed that may spring up when we are sleeping beneath the hillock in the cemetery. And I think it's safe to say, with both Charles and Susanna, mm-hmm. many seeds were planted that are even today springing up to the glory of God. Beads Podcast is in partnership
0: with h Publishing, a formed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of Church History, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people.